On the 70th anniversary of the partition of British India, here's the final podcast in the Harvard South Asia Institute's special series. We've heard fascinating insights about its history and continuing impact from leading scholars in their fields. Martha Chen is lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School. Part two of her extraordinary story. She was a child in India in 1947, but as an adult, she also happened to be based in the city of Dhaka as it became the capital of Bangladesh following South Asia's second partition in 1971. Lincoln and I arrived in Dhaka, East Pakistan in July of 1970. And uh, the reason was that it was Vietnam War, all newly trained doctors had to do public health service. And if you qualified, you could go to the National Institutes of Health, which is um, where Lincoln was posted. But I heard at a dinner party in Boston that there was an affiliate institute uh, to the National NIH in Dhaka, East Pakistan, called Cito Cholera Research Lab, where Richard Cash, at the end of the table, had been. Um, and we, in, in fact, inherited his house because he left as we arrived. Um, so I just, having grown up in India, I wanted to go home to South Asia. So going to Dhaka, East Pakistan was great. And so we ended up there. And little did we know, our son Greg was 10 months. We were in our mid-20s, little did we know that we were going to be not only witness to, but become actively involved in two major human tragedies and dramas in East Pakistan that year. And the first was the, the very large cyclone and tidal wave in November of 1970, and then there was the genocide and civil war of 1971. So we were caught up in that, and it changed our lives. Um, so, we had arrived in July. On November 12th of 1970, this very large cyclone hit uh, East Pakistan and West Bengal. Um, it is arguably the deadliest tropical cyclone of all times. Um, anywhere from three to 500,000 people lost their lives. And it was primarily as a result of the, the tidal wave mm -hmm. or the storm surge that came with the cyclone, where you would have People were told about being way up high in the trees and just holding on for dear life. Um, and so the, the tidal wave really swept across all, there were low-lying islands in the, at the mouth of the delta in the bay. And so um, whole villages would be swept away and all the livestock and crops and everything. And it took two or three days in those, at that time for the news to actually reach Dhaka. So when the news did reach Dhaka, um, there were two Bengali sisters who were in our small social network, Richard knows them well, um, Rooney and Putul Hossein. And there was the wife of another American doctor at the cholera research lab, Candy Rohde, and I. We sort of met over breakfast and said, we're going to do something. We're going to get some supplies and get them out to these um, devastated communities. And we, um, two Bangladeshi men we knew went on a reconnoiter. Uh, trip, and we found that the island of Manpura was one of the worst hit. So we sort of focused all our attention on Manpura Island. And Lincoln and John Rohde and other doctors from the cholera lab flew down in helicopters and provided medical assistance. And we um, gathered supplies 
And um, we had a dear friend, uh, Fazli Hassan Abid, who most people know as the head of BRAC. Mm -hmm. At that time, he was the Shell Oil Company executive, and he lived in Chittagong, the port town. And so we just invaded his house and used his garage and his spare room for our warehouse, and we started stockpiling supplies, and then we would get them out to the island. And that's a whole story. We had Sibagaygi planes, we had Pakistani planes, we had German rescue helicopters. Everyone worked with us because we were the first responders. There was no one else there. The Pakistan army hadn't responded, so it was um, a dramatic moment, and we started this cyclone relief effort. In December, early December, December 4th, uh, Pakistan held its first general election. And it was seen as a clean and fair election. There were some 20 parties that contested, but the real battle was between the Awami League of East Pakistan, which was a Bengali nationalist party headed by Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. And the other party was the Pakistan People's Party headed by Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. And the Awami League just won resoundingly. I mean, I think they got all but two or three seats in the, in the East Wing, but they, they were so populous, they sort of won the vast majority of seats in the new assembly. Um, but Zulfikar Ali Bhutto did not want to take this lying down, so he proposed there should be two prime ministers of Pakistan, one for each wing, which was very soon rejected. And so then, um, he and the president, Yahya Khan, um, were trying to delay the transfer of power. Um, but in, Ju in January, um, President Yahya Khan promised Sheikh Mujib that he would become the next prime minister, and there would be the first meeting of the new National Assembly in Dhaka on March 3rd. But meanwhile, um, what we have come to know, and it's fairly well documented, um, um, Bhutto, Yahya Khan, and top military leaders were plotting a crackdown in the East. And um, so, um, and Bhutto tried to get Yahya Khan to postpone the assembly. So on March 1st, uh, Yahya Khan announced that the assembly would not be convened until March 25th. And this led to protests all over East Pakistan and some violence when the security forces would fire on unarmed protesters. And it really led to a major sort of demand uh, for independence and a, a rally. So on March 7th of 1971, uh, the Awami League had a, held a mass rally in the center of Dhaka um, in an area called Ramna Park. Uh, race course area, and um, Sheikh Mujib gave this very historic speech that everyone listened very carefully to. Um, so he opened the speech with an invocation to quote the people of Bangladesh, unquote. Uh, he laid down four conditions for uh, joining the National Assembly, and then he called for a major civil disobedient movement in East Pakistan. And he concluded um, with the soon famous lines, and I'm going to butcher the Bengali, but I'm going to try. Ebare sangram amader muktir sangram. Ebare sangram shodinotar sangram, which means our struggle this time is a struggle for our freedom, mukti. Our struggle this time 
is a struggle for our independence, Shwadi Notor, Joy Bangla. Now, my husband's brother, Victor, was visiting us at the time, and he was a writer for The New Yorker, and he went to that speech and recorded it. So when our Bangladeshi, our East Pakistani friends then, heard that he had a recording, they all came over to the house because they wanted to listen to see exactly which words Sheikh Mujib had used. And it was general, the general conclusion, not only in our house, but more generally, was that it was a de facto declaration of independence of Bangladesh, not just a call for autonomy. So um, the atmosphere then just continued to get tenser and, more, and tenser between March 7th and March 25th when the National Assembly was supposed to be held. Well, March 25th came, there was no National Assembly. But what happened was that night at midnight, uh, the military started this crackdown. The code name was Operation Searchlight. And there are documents about how this was planned and some fairly grim you know, quotes of Yahya Khan and others of what the intention was. The intention was to get rid of the Awami League elite, the intellectual elite, and, to, and the Hindus. Right? And so um, at 1.15 in the morning of March 26, Sheikh Mujib was arrested. Later that morning, uh, Awami League students and professors in Dhaka University were murdered. And um, there were two Hindu areas that we were all very fond of. Uh, one was the Kali Temple in the middle of the Ramna racecourse. Um, they killed the priest and his family and the whole community there. And in Old Dhaka, there was a lane called Shankari Bazaar. It was a sort of an artisan lane. Shankari, Shank refers to the conch shell, and the artisans would sh slice the shell and make uh, white bracelets mm -hmm. that were sort of for weddings. Um, and um, so they, uh, uh, they went in and killed pretty much everyone. Uh, in the, and Shankari Bazaar was renamed Tika Khan Lane after the general who had lined up tanks on either end of the lane and just told them to shoot at everyone inside. Um, uh, the um, the government declared curfew, of course, and so for all of March 26th, um, Lincoln and his brother and I and all the expatriate friends and Bengali friends that we had in Gulshan, which is a, a suburb on sort of the outskirts of Dhaka, then on the outskirts mm -hmm. of Dhaka, yeah. now, <laughs> right in the middle of Dhaka. <laughs> um, so we would gather on the roof terraces because the, they would have these flat roofs and try to figure out what was happening. We tried to figure out, you know, that blast or that plume of smoke or that, what's going on where in the city. And at one point in that day, um, right below us almost, um, there was a group of men rounded up from a village just on the other side of like a little lake. And they were brought to this park when we were sort of above it. Um, and the park, ironically, was called the shooting park because it was where people would do target practice. And the men were all made to lie down flat on the, on the grass. And then when their names were called, they were boarded onto trucks. And the charge was that they had been harboring people who had fled the city and were giving them shelter uh, to people who the military was trying to round up. And we were not sure of their fate. We figured it was prison at best and uh, the firing line at worst. And the most eerie thing throughout 
was that the women and the dogs in the village from which they'd rounded up the men were keening. They were, they were that kind of howl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was going on as the backdrop to this. Um, and I remember the soldiers spotted us up and on the roof terrace, and I had my, I always have my Nikon camera on the ready, and they were, you know, they sort of pointed their guns and said, no, we don't do that. So we were, you know, we were very anxious to know what was going on elsewhere. Um, and when the curfew was lifted then on March 27th, um, all of us formed small groups and fanned out across the city to document what had happened, okay? So Lincoln and I drove to the Kali Temple, and we drove to Shankari Bazaar. And pretty much all we saw was, was bodies smoldering in the ashes. And out of Shankari Bazaar ash, one guy came walking out in a daze and he said, are you journalists? And we said, no. He said, you must tell our story. And that we said, that's what we're planning to do. Um, and then Lincoln and I drove up to a um, faculty residence in Dhaka University. And as we pulled up, I think we had a, I forget what car we had, we had a funny little car. And we pulled up in our car and I said, oh my God. Because what was on the front steps and all the way up the stairwell was a thick stream of caked blood. And they had murdered faculty who had come out trying to keep their families all right inside and then left, and the families hadn't felt secure enough to go recover the bodies uh, right away. So um, that was what we were witness to. Um, some of us also gave shelter to um, people who were fleeing. So we, we <laughs> Lincoln and I sheltered Ali Aksad, a colorful communist leader. Um, and we know that our friend Fazli Hassan Abid was summoned to West Pakistan by the Shell Oil Company. And he feared for his life, so he uh, escaped overland to Afghanistan and then into um, Great Britain. Now, one person on the scene was Archer K. Blood, the U.S. Consul. And, and he was supportive of the cause of East Pakistan. And he encouraged us to document what we had seen and that he would help us file a white paper in the congressional record to document all this. And we knew and liked Archer Blood a lot. His wife, Margaret, had helped us early on in the relief work. She'd commandeered the U.S. ambassador's plane to help us transport supplies from Dhaka to Chittagong. So they were good folks. And on March 31st, Archer, Bo Archer Blood um, ordered the evacuation of official Americans. Now, we were official Americans because Lincoln was in the public health service. And he wanted us to tell the story of what we had seen and heard. And he went on to personally expose the use of U.S. arms and ammunitions in, by the Pak Army in the Civil War. And on April 6th, he wrote, um, he became the first U.S. diplomat to do this, but it was a known channel, but nobody had ever done it. It's called a dissent cable. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a dissent cable to the U.S. Secretary of State. I don't remember who it was. Oh, it was Kissinger, of course. Um, and, um, to condemn the fact that their ally was using U.S. weapons in a genocide and civil war. And in so doing, he was defying Nixon and Kissinger's tilt towards Pakistan, right? So his dissent cable cost Archer Blood a career 
as a U.S. ambassador. And I really would recommend, there's a book by a, a, a Princeton um, a scholar. He's, I think he's a professor of politics. It's called The Blood Telegram, <laughs> Nixon, Kissinger, and a Forgotten Genocide. And George Packer, the well-known journalist, wrote in a review of The Blood Telegram, quote, Gary Bass has excavated a great tragedy, that one that's been forgotten by Americans but is seared into the memory of South Asians. His talents as a scholar, writer, and foreign policy analyst are on full display in this brilliant work of narrative history. Nixon and Kissinger come damningly alive on the pages of a book that shows, like nothing else I've read, the folly that goes by the name of realism, the realpolitik. So instead of being evacuated to Bangkok, where we could tell our story as Archer Blood had requested, we were evacuated to Karachi, West Pakistan. As our evacuation plane sort of lifted off the tarmac at Dhaka Airport, many of us waved our green Bangladeshi flags that we had sort of <coughs> <coughs> smuggled on board. And when we reached Karachi, it was the middle of the night, U.S. Embassy doctors and nurses were there to receive us. And they were there to tell us that things were not as bad as we thought and to advise us to take the tranquilizers that they gave to us. <laughs> right? At the time, we didn't fully appreciate the complicity of the U.S., especially of Nixon and Kissinger, in the genocide that had unfolded before our eyes. Yeah? And of course, the genocide led to the war and that drove 10 million refugees to India and cost half a million or more people their lives. The war lasted um, until mid-December when the Indian military had joined the Mukti Bahini, the Bangladesh forces, in the war against Pakistan. Um, Lincoln and I were evacuated then in April, and we spent a month. They then sent us to Tehran, where the U.S. had a big embassy, for a month. We were kept under watch and seal. And then eventually we were able to spend the rest of uh, 71 in the U.S. with a month in the U.K., where we met up with Fazli Hassan Abed and others who were trying to get the UK government to back Bangladesh. Um, and so it's important, I'm mean, moved to the US now, to know that you know, even though the government of the, <laughs> the US was pro-West Pakistan, there were a real outpouring of sympathy for Bangladesh in, in America. And in fact, Oxfam um, decided there was enough sympathy and support and funds and volunteers that they founded Oxfam America to help channel the funds and um, volunteers to that effort. So, and there were many Boston area people involved in all of this. Um, there were the people from the Cholera Research Lab who'd been there like Richard and David Nalen and Jim and Anna Taylor, um, Gus and Hannah Papanek, do people know them? Mm -hmm. They were active. Yeah. Um, and in D.C., um, both Bengali and U.S. activists had opened a Bangladesh Information Center in a one-room, second-floor <laughs> apartment um, at um, Seward Square, quite near where the Congressional and Senate office buildings are. And it became a hub for the, all the activities, and the volunteers um, produced literature, distributed literature to people who were organizing pro-Bangladesh events. They helped 
you know, sort of prominent activists who, com who came to meet with uh, senators and congressional aides. Um, and as part of this coordinated effort, there were Friends of Bangladesh chapters set up all over the and so Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, and we were active in the Boston one in the summer months. Um, and among other things, we marched in front of the state capitol, but we also took a flotilla of canoes and kayaks out into the Boston Harbor alongside the ships that were taking U.S. guns and arms to Pakistan to protest the shipment because there was a ban on the sending of U.S. lethal weapons to Pakistan for use in the Civil War. And a longshoreman, when we were crazy out in our canoes and kayaks, when we came back in, one longshoreman explained, he said, you know, we knew about that, but they told us that if guns go in one ship and ammunition goes in another, they are classified as non-lethal, right? This is how they were getting around the ban, right? So, um, so there, w there was a lot of movement and uh, action here. Um, and of course, I think everyone knows that on, in August, on August 1st, I think it was, in 1971, there were two concerts for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden, <coughs> one organized by George Harrison, the former lead guitarist of the Beatles, and the other by Ravi Shankar, the famous Indian sitar master. And these twin concerts really helped to raise consciousness about Bangladesh. And decades later, Shankar would say of the overwhelming success of the event, in one day the whole world knew the name of Bangladesh. It was a fantastic occasion. But what is less well known is that Senator Edward Kennedy visited East Pakistan in August, um, despite the official U.S. policy in favor of West Pakistan. And his staff, Jerry Tinker and, and Dale DeHaan, as well as Tim Dine, who worked for Senator Church, provided critical support to all of us who are working with Friends of Bangladesh and the Bangladesh Information Center. And they helped put our white paper into the congressional record. In the fall of 1971, and maybe Richard, you were part of this too, I don't remember, after Lincoln, my husband had joined NIH. We ended up back at NIH, even though I tried to get us to East Pakistan. Um, he was asked by Senator Kennedy and his staff to testify to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So it's Lincoln and several of the doctors. Yeah, yeah, it was Lincoln and some of the doctors, and then we continued to lobby because we were stopping. We had information coming in from, from blood and from powdered tin. Yeah. And so we had better information than the U.S. government had, right. basically. So they testified at, to the Senate Judiciary on what they had seen as a medical humanitarian crisis so that at least the humanitarian aid side of things could get some attention. Um, but I have to say that when Lincoln went to his boss at the NIH to say he was going to testify, um, the boss suggested that was not a prudent thing to do. And he threatened to post Lincoln on a Coast Guard clipper off the coast of Alaska <laughs> if he testified. Anyway, Lincoln testified he wasn't posted. But you know, the, there was such tension around because Nixon and Kissinger were tilting towards Pakistan because it was their route into China. And they just wanted that not to be disturbed. Yeah, so. Uh, anyway, the rest of the history of that year is that I think it was December 3rd that the Indian military began helping the Mukti Bahini because some Pakistan 
aircraft had shot the, the Indian soldiers on the other side of the border. And so on December 16th, um, the Bangladesh was liberated. The Pakistan army was defeated. Um, but Sheikh Mujib was in Pakistan in a jail. And he wasn't released from jail until uh, January 10th, <coughs> almost a month later. Lincoln and I happened to be in New Delhi um, visiting my parents. Um, and I heard that Sheikh Mujib's plane was going to stop in Delhi. So I went out really early in the morning, in a gloomy winter morning, and stood there with a clutch of Bangladeshis um, for his plane to land. And Mrs. Gandhi was there, uh, the Prime Minister and the President Giri. And all I can remember is him coming out onto the sort of stairwell of the plane, looking very gaunt and worn in a very oversized black winter coat and sort of waving to all of us. And we sang Amar Shonar Bangla, and I wept. And you know, there was such emotions. And he went home that day to Dhaka, you know, to a hero's welcome, because he was the father of Bangladesh. And um, the sequel is that the US government didn't recognized Bangladesh for a while either. So we had, to keep, we had to keep the pressure up. And in March of 72, we held a Bangladesh evening, I think, at either George Washington or Georgetown University in DC with an exhibition of craft and a musical and all of that. And it was only on April 4th, 1972, that the US government finally recognized Bangladesh. So. That's the history, and I'll just conclude with two th sets of thoughts. One is on the broader political narratives. These are the things that came out to me in sort of putting all this together. One is the folly of empire and the folly of the realpolitik. I mean, they rupture these existing states and societies, and they force violent formations of new states and societies. And the repercussions are still being felt. Now, I mean, the other counterfactual is what would have happened anyway without that. But um, the second is, that there was a government failure to respond to disasters in before both um, mm -hmm. events. There was the 1943-44 famine in India, and as well as the 1970. And these, this failure of government to respond sort of reinforced feelings of neglect and emboldened the call for independence. I was also struck that how these leaders were defining national identity. So Jinnah, it was religion. Although he was, um, as I know it, he ate pork, he yes, smoked yes. cigars. You know, he was a very dapper. He wasn't very Muslim in his habits. Um, but he, j religion was the card that he was playing. Gandhi and Nehru were playing secularism. Uh, Sheikh Mujib, the whole Bengali nationalist movement, had been around the Bengali language movement because Pakistan wanted to impose Urdu. And Bengalis, if nothing else, they loved their language, right? And now we have religion again in Modi, right? So um, different ways of defining <coughs> national identity. And I was very struck that you have freedom struggles um, leading to independence. But the shadow is that it's also partitions. And the partitions have such long-lasting consequences. And the ones that we know about, Jennifer, of course, is studying the humanitarian crises. But it was further polarization of Muslims and Hindus. I mean, I, it didn't start with the partitions, but it was a further. And cultural loss. I mean, people that I've known from every which side of the border, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, they mourn their beloved cities. I mean, the cities are like huge icons in their memory. 
whether it's Calcutta or Delhi or Lahore, that you can't get back to. Uh, identity crises. I mean, I have lots of friends in Pakistan. They just don't know when their history starts. You know, they don't. It's hard. It's hard being a new nation. And of course, there's ongoing conflict, um, making it really difficult for the region to stabilize. Um, and then just on the personal narrative or narratives, um, as I mentioned, our family was divided by partition. But you know, we were foreigners, so the borders remained very porous for us. We came and went. I visited my grandparents in 49. <coughs> they came in the summers back to Missouri. Um, so we didn't have that you know, firm border. But we were also insider-outsiders. So we, I think we, we experienced uh, the fact that all these three countries share heritage and culture. I mean, the shared culture and heritage, I think, is so much stronger than what they think divides them. Uh, and yet we have also felt all the suspicion and intolerance across. Um, and I will say the partition of India and Pakistan is seared in our consciousness as a family. I don't know if Afshan and Isaiah would agree and Kyle. But, and I just wanted to share two examples. My brother Tom Alter, he was born after 1947, but he plays repeatedly in a play, Maulana Azad, in a one-person play in Urdu based on Azad's diary. And Azad was a Muslim leader um, who lamented partition. He didn't want partition to happen. He stayed in India and became the first education minister of independent India. And my brother's got a festival of all his plays and readings and all in, in Mumbai right now. And a lot of the themes are about intercultural, interreligious, harmony, uh, secularism, you know. It's part, it's a leap motif in my brother's work. And my cousin Steve Alter, also born after 1947, made a trip by road and train from India to Pakistan in 1997, um, the 50th anniversary of partition. Uh, to explore the impact of partition on people's uh, lives and identity on either side of the border. And his book is called Amritsar to Lahore. Now, Amritsar and Lahore are just either side of the border, so it's not a great distance, but it's a great distance in other, it's not a great geographical distance, a journey across the India-Pakistan border. And what he writes in conclusion is that during the course of my journey, many of the people I met in Pakistan and India expressed a curious combination of affection, indifference, and animosity toward their neighbors across the border. The border divides them, but it is also a seam that joins the fabric of their cultures. <laughs>